like of the two articles you wrote, I fundamentally agree with them. Like what we're talking about here is like what higher do we do level at, problems. Yeah. yeah, like yeah, <laughs> what do we do when we organize the Socialist Party and and try to take power? What do we what do we need to do? Um, so I, I, I think wanna... there's a notion that people had in the past where you have to organize the factories of heavy industry because that's strategic. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not true. Right. In other words, like that's just, it's not like I agree. there's the means of production and everything else is just yeah. rentiers and their adjectives. I get confused about, you know, I have to really think, and sometimes I don't even get to the conclusion about what counts as commodity production, what actually counts as producing value. And there's some confusion, I admit. Around you know this. what it counts? Everything that reproduces labor power. Right. Well, any, anything that... Because that's the main commodity. That's right. the only commodity that really matters. Okay. Listen. And not I'm because gonna, it I, produces things, but because it mediates society. If everyone wants to watch Chris Catrone wipe the floor with Doug Lane... They're going to have to continue on in the Patreon. I'm going to, we can keep recording, but uh, this is where we're going to break for the Patreon. Uh, So this will be fun. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Chris Catrone... Uh, you are, uh, uh, the former president of the platypus affiliated society, uh, professor of critical theory, uh, a friend of sublation media and, uh, you know, regular guest on diet soap. Welcome back. I'm glad to talk to you today. Um, and want to thank you for coming on. I know you've been busy writing and I want to introduce what we'll be talking about, which is, um, your two essays, one with compact. Uh, which is entitled The End of the Millennial, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to say The End of the Millennial Left, which is something you did a while back. It's called The End of Millennial Marxism, Mm -hmm. and one with our own Sublation magazine called Dogmanization and Thought Taboos on the Left. You read that essay at the Sublation Media launch with Norman Mm -hmm. Finkelstein and others, Um, and you've told me that these two pieces are kind of companion pieces. One is aimed at the left, that's the one we published, and one was aimed at the right with Compact. I asked you before how how similar these essays are, and if you could summarize them, uh, uh, you know, as a in a single go, maybe for like a centrist, if you were going to just describe it as someone who was neither on the left or the right. Um, so we'll start there. So I was um, solicited to write for Compact. Uh, by one of their editors who has since left, Edwin Aponte of mm-hmm. the Bellows. He's one of the founding editors of Compact, but he actually left on the same day that they published my essay. And they solicited it almost uh, two months back. Um, and uh, he wanted, you know, what he asked for was a kind of general introduction to Marxism and a criticism of the millennial left. 
And so I expanded something that I had prepared and delivered for the Platypus Convention this year that you attended on the purpose of Marxism on a panel with James Hartfield, Benjamin Studebaker, and Donald Parkinson, in which I sort of gave a kind of summary of Marxism and its relationship to historical socialist and communist movements, and then talked about how the millennial left was falling short of that original purpose of Marxism. So I expanded it to include um, a, a kind of more general introduction to Marxism and a history of the millennial left from the anti-war movement through Occupy Wall Street, you know, the Great Recession, and then up to Black Lives Matter and Me Too, and finally the Bernie campaign and what I consider to be the liquidation of the millennial left into the Democratic Party and into kind of progressive liberal politics rather than socialist politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote it, the expanded version, in such a way to address both the right and the left, but really the compact editors and uh, presumably readership um, in terms of what I thought they needed to understand about the basic assumptions of Marxism and, and what they may not understand about either Marxism or socialism. And, you know, so Compact thinks of itself as um, kind of neither left nor right and kind of a meeting point for so-called left populism and right populism and a kind of radical challenge to the status quo's politics, you know, whether Democrat or Republican. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, challenge them a bit in what I think they usually assume, you know, uh, you know, which I don't, you know, know the editors terribly well. You know, I don't know their work terribly well, but I had a, a sense of where they were coming from. And so I thought an intervention in mm-hmm. that in that context. And I also thought, given the nature of that publication and its profile, even though it's a fairly new publication, that it would, in fact, be paid attention to by the left, if only out of a kind of malicious readership of me, where they would be parsing my every word and looking for evidence against me and reading me almost forensically, mm-hmm. right? And so I thought, okay. And then, you know, and, and reading it thinking that, you know, that they're overhearing me talk to the right, but not critically, but rather conspiratorially or something, you know, that I'm mm-hmm. trying to, like, you know, I think someone on Twitter said that I'm coming into the fold with the Compact Magazine people, which, of course, I'm not doing. Um, although I am publishing another essay there pretty quickly. Yeah, I, um, they pay pretty well, right? I mean, yeah, they pay decently, but um, they invited me to submit again. And so I thought I'd do something entirely different, which is a pop culture review uh, essay on um, Ozark, the series Ozark, which oh, yeah. was concluded this year, and um, which I watched and. I wasn't sure whether I liked the series, but then I got into it. And then when it concluded the final season, then I decided, actually, I do like the series. And uh, so I decided to, again, as an intervention with them, like their notion of like populism and like the problem with American politics and American society and capitalism. Um, and so it's another, you know, intervention. But the sublation piece, so anyway, the compact piece went through a kind of complicated editorial process it took them a long time to process it. And they did a lot of like rewriting of the piece. Mm-hmm. I was a little shocked. They gave it to me 24 hours before it went up and I looked at track changes and the whole thing was read. 
like everything had to change, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, oh my God, am I going to be able to deal with this? And it turns out that they just kind of fiddled. They didn't really, they, they cut some things, they didn't do any serious censoring of the content and they reworded things in a way that was neither here nor there. So I let most of the changes go. I, and then I added some things also to kind mm-hmm. of underscore my intervention there um, on the state because they wanted me to elaborate on bonapartism and this mm-hmm. and that. So I just, so, you know, I kind of knew that it was causing some consternation. My sense is that maybe among the editors, there was some tension and some disagreements and that my piece might've been a little bit of a flashpoint with respect to that. Maybe not so much, but then like I, I mentioned, and and when Aponte did leave the journal, um, the day of the publication of my piece, um, and because he wrote something in the bellows about objecting to the right and the left falling back into the old culture wars, the old sort of social liberal, social conservative stuff that they were supposed to have tried to transcend, but he thought they're kind of going down that highway. Um, And the... And he wrote it in the bellows against. He wrote in the bellows. And then, you know, I do think that in compact magazine, they are social conservatives, actually, you know, so Nina power there has written critiques of like gender and sexuality politics. Um, And so there is a kind of social conservatism for sure. Um, Which, you know, know, I'm not particularly sympathetic to, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the objection to wokeness, but that doesn't mean that I'm sympathetic to social conservatism, right? That's like a little bit of a difference, especially because I think wokeness is actually a form of social conservatism myself. Well, what 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 has Nina Power said that that you can remember that makes you think that she is a social conservative rather than? Well, she wrote an article called "We Need Patriarchy." Yeah. So that's, that's it. you know, and I don't want to go by just the title. I mean, there's more of an argument there, right? And it's, it's actually, the argument is a little bit like, we need patriarchy to rebel against, right? Like, it's a little bit of a kind of, yeah, it's, it's like, we need patriarchy, but we also need, like, the critical object, the original critical object of feminism, whereas with the new gender identity stuff, it's become a kind of a mush. And so there's, it's kind of neither here nor there. So she was kind of complaining at a, at a kind of depoliticization of feminism. Right. Right. Um, so a kind of critical feminism, not exactly anti-feminist, but definitely against what they consider the new gender ideology. Yeah. Right? Okay. Right. Yeah. And so, my, my response to that is you may need it. You're not getting it back. That, you well, know, like I mean, that... or it's never gone away. Okay. Right. It's not going away either, right? Because I would say, like, a lot of trans stuff is, like, very conservative and deeply patriarchal, actually, you know, um, in a lot of ways. Because of the assumptions about, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, a woman, right? And it, it's kind of like, okay, but that sort of assumes some things, doesn't it? Right? And so, you know, it tends to kind of reify gender. In, in, in certain respects, there's tension. Sure. Yeah, there's like yeah. non-binary, and there's the idea that gender. And there's is not- body dysmorphia, which is a completely. That's like the. It's taken up. Medicalized. And it's biologized. I mean, I'm I'm old enough that I object to the gay gene idea. Yeah. You know, like the idea that I'm gay because of genetics. Like I would never say my rights, my rights in terms of my sexuality are due to the fact that 
I'm genetically. You're born that way. Born that way, Lady Gaga. <laughs> I know, and I like Lady Gaga, but I don't like born that. Way. Born yeah, I understand. Way. Yeah, yeah. No, you I know? remember when that was the line. You had to uh, think that it it was genetic in some way. You know, whether it was right. Otherwise, uh, you're conceding to homophobia by saying that it's a choice. Right. And it's like, well, it is a choice. Of course, I have a choice over my own actions. Do I have a choice over my own desire? I don't know. Not not really, but maybe. Maybe I can reprogram myself. You know, I can watch different porn or something, you know? Like, I don't, you know? Like, in other words, I'm interested in sexual freedom. And I'm interested in people being free of gender norms. I am. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean having to establish new gender norms, right? Necessarily, right? Um, you can be gender nonconformist, you know, and that doesn't have to be like biological, and doesn't, you know, nah, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to mean taking hormones or getting surgery, especially because I don't think our medical technology is all that great, you know. Um, I wouldn't put my faith in that. Um, to, to, to do me right. You know, um, I don't think we're in a place where we can, you know, radically alter our physiology with, with agency, with like freedom. I don't Mm -hmm. think that that, I don't think we're there yet. You know, we might get there at some point. Um, there's reason for skepticism about that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of neither here nor there. So again, with these culture wars, I kind of feel like, well, I don't like any of these terms. I don't yeah. like the false polarizations around these things and the the paranoid weird shifting. But your article for Compact really didn't enter that phrase. I don't at all. go there. I don't go there. And it's very dry, you know. So I, I wrote the expanded version of the article when I had COVID. It was after the convention because I got COVID at the Platypus Convention, as did many other people. And um, and it was the article was deliberately downbeat, but maybe more downbeat than I intended because I was writing it when I was down mm-hmm. with COVID. Um, and so, you know, I was trying to be like a dry and kind of pedagogical, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, not not be particularly provocative any more than Marxism itself is provocative. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I didn't want to get into like flashpoint kind of like things, you know, Mm -hmm. but just sort of be as straightforward as possible and not really weigh into the social conservatism of compact. So anyway, that's that article. Mm -hmm. And then I, they had promised me that it would be out either the week before or the week of the sublation launch party. And I thought this is a great propitious kind of coincidence and it will be very fortuitous and, and it will generate some buzz and people will have read it. And then I'll go in there and I'll make this other intervention Mm -hmm. on the topic of the sublation launch party, which was censorship. And so I came at it at a little bit of an oblique angle and it was kind of like, okay, I've laid out what Marxism is and how the millennial left is not really Marxist and at some distance from a kind of struggle for socialism. And I'm going to make a provocation against the leftist audience 
um, a sublation audience, but kind of a Jacobin audience, like a kind of Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. hipster mm-hmm. leftist audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and do something that I don't usually do, which is use class terms. You know, um, because usually I think that that's like cheap and unmotivated, you know, but I thought I'm just going to do this, especially because both compact and Jacobin are very hung up on this professional managerial class kind of angst Mm -hmm. of the millennial left. And I just, you know, I wanted to sort of take up that kind of discourse and recenter it in a Marxist way, mm-hmm. as opposed to a kind of James Burnham kind of way that they were doing, right. kind of like bourgeois sociology kind of way. Um, I wanted to just sort of say, okay, what what are we even talking about? And also, like, what are we doing? Like, you know, it's a sublation launch party. We're launching a new publication venture, media venture on the left. What are we doing? What are, what's going on? And I have a, a way of thinking and talking about that with regards to Platypus, where Platypus is very deliberately like an intellectual project, you know, that we're not trying to organize the working class. You know, we don't make any claims like that. We're making a kind of a negative intervention that's ideological among intellectuals, you know, students, you know, in school and after school who are you know, who are intellectuals, who are interested in Marxism as an idea or a set of ideas, mm-hmm. um, and who are interested in the left at the level of ideas. And I also think, by the way, that that's all that the left really is about. Like, in mm-hmm. other words, the left just is progressive, liberal, Democrat, whatever. But what distinguishes them are the ideas that they use. So they use Mark, they kind of abuse Marxism to justify progressive liberalism. And I would say, you know, I've been guilty of that at various points in my life. Like, in other words, this is just an endemic problem. It's not like a specific problem of like some people thinking wrong or doing wrong. It's not about that. It's more like our condition, like where the left is, has ended up, that we're kind of fated to proceed this way. And we need to stop and think, like, what are we doing? Especially Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's kind of like uh, with the, with the compact editing process, you know, the solicitation process, the editing process, I think that they thought of me in a a very similar way to the way like Benedict Cryptofash thought of me as like a class first leftist. And it's kind of like, I could see how you could understand Marxism that way as like class first leftism, but it's not quite right. It's not, it's not really like, that kind of thing, especially the way most people think about that and the way that plays out politically. Right. right. And that's why I did in the sublation presentation and in, in the article, that's why I talked about organized labor, you know, because I think about where, where, where's the millennial left ending up. They're ending up in like progressive Democrat campaigns. They're like campaign consultants. Um, but they're also doing things like joining the staff of unions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not, they're not, I mean, they are joining a unionized workforce as well, but a lot of them are joining as union staff as part of the labor bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. to be frank. And so again, they think that they're joining like the workers movement. And I just feel like not really, you know, you're joining the democratic party NGO system, 
but it's labor wing as opposed to its identity community organizing wing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had the launch stream with Sublation, Mm -hmm. and I was on with Ben Burgess, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we had some audio problems then, so I kind of got cut out, cut off, Mm -hmm. and I was kind of leading him down a path of argumentation that I was not able to follow through on, Mm -hmm. because I was talking about how Bernie, even Bernie, who's running as a Democrat, and really running as a progressive liberal, calling it socialism, when he complained about the establishment. And I I started with the identity community group establishment, like, um, you know, Human Rights Campaign, HRC, Hillary Rodham Clinton, no, it's the gay group, um, and Planned Parenthood and National Organization of Women, that's the establishment, right? And NAACP, that's the establishment that Bernie was complaining about. But the establishment is also the labor unions because the labor unions, the labor bureaucracy, the official endorsements went to Hillary, not Bernie. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was the establishment he was up against. And I think that the Jacobin people and Ben Burgess in that discussion would have been challenged in thinking about the unions as part of the establishment in the way that Bernie, even just as a, like a liberal Democrat, um, small L, small D Democrat, you know, like just as like a radical, you know, like he could have been a Green Party candidate or he could have been running as an independent and he could say the political establishment and he, you'd have to include organized labor in that. that that's part of the political establishment. Um, and so, you know, again, thinking about what our role is as petty bourgeois intellectuals. And I started out in my article for Sublation with you. You are this. And I shift at a certain point, at a key point, to we, because I'm not exempting myself, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to make, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I'm a proletarian socialist. No, I'm a petty bourgeois intellectual in terms of my functional role. You know, I might be adjunct faculty. I might be part of the proletarianized kind of like professoriate. But I'm, you know, that, you know, I, yeah, I guess I'm part of the working class. But, you know, my role as a leftist is not as a worker militant. My role is as an intellectual. Yeah. And as an intellectual, my role is petty bourgeois. It's not, there is no such thing as a working class intellectual apart from like a party or at least a serious movement. Like, I guess you could be a working class anarchist intellectual like that, or you could have been a member of like a socialist party, but like us, no. Well, I mean, if you're if you have a regular job and you write for Sublation magazine, are you not a but, working class intellectual? Well, in a sociological sense, yes, but not in a functional sense. Meaning that when you enter the intellectual realm, you are entering basically the realm of bourgeois ideology. I mean, this okay. would be a controversial. Well, let, I want to I want to ask you a question yeah. about cl- class politics or class versus leftism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I think I actually wrote an essay and made a little video uh, defending class first uh, leftism, saying, well, listen, um, if you are a Marxist, you think that overcoming the class relationships around production is what the project for socialism is about. So huh? you're going to look to you're going to reduce the problems of society down to the most basic uh, problem. And it's going to be the necessity for there to be a class and then an exploitation and all the, the contradictions that arise from that. Um, so you're class first. 
that doesn't mean that you're strategically class first or that you think that um, well you might be strategically you may not be tactically but you might okay, be okay yeah okay Ta- yeah that's what know. i mean to say tactically um you may not be tactically class first you're going to have to decide what struggles to enter into what right, the most right, right. will mm-hmm. be but so i'm class first in that sense in, in the sense of thinking the primary problem in our society is the fact that it is a class society and not not to be that it, it that the kinds of freedom mm-hmm. that we want uh, can't be achieved as long as we are in a class society um and but you and you're that kind that's of that's the tricky business though isn't it that's the tricky business because i feel like what that means you know i mean i've i've written about this for platypus it's an important point and i i take it up in the compact article and i presume it in the sublation article mm-hmm. that class is not the cause it's the effect Okay. Right. So the the cause is the contradiction of capitalism, whose effect is to divide the interests of society between the workers and the capitalists. Right. So we could say the first classless society, besides the Paleolithic hunter gatherers, like primitive communism, the first classless society is bourgeois society, because you get rid of the aristocracy and the clergy. So that's the elimination of class. As far as bourgeois society is concerned, class doesn't really exist. There's only a kind of wealth hierarchy, which is not the same thing as class, right? Because they would say there's nothing barring someone. So they, they usually okay. think of it, liberals think of it as class mobility, right? But and wouldn't you say, though, Chris, that mm-hmm. when you, in a bourgeois society where labor um, is determining the, the uh, uh, terms of society and mm-hmm. things are p- produced uh, mm-hmm. to be ex- uh, ex- fair exchange, you know, f- produced mm-hmm. for exchange um, as equivalents, that the logic of that form of production produces class relationships and industrialization both, that, you, well, that you're not going to be able to escape the class society as long as labor um, and the value that it creates is determining the rate of it, you know, the rate and... Well, it's just a funny thing when you think about, like, class struggle, like, in the Marxist sense, because, you know, if you go back to the original sort of bourgeois vision of, of society and of society mm-hmm. based on labor, what you're going to find is that there's very little role for the capitalists, in fact, what we would call the capitalists, what Adam Smith called the proprietors, mm-hmm. or the merchants. In other words, they have a, a very secondary role. And, you know, like Adam Smith takes this up, are the merchants, are the proprietors, you know, who start out as merchants and then become the proprietors, the people who actually take the goods that the workers made and bring it to market and sell it and then take the money from that and pay the wages. Are they performing a labor? He takes that up. Are they contributing? Is that, is that work labor? And he says, not really. Right. And, you know, because we're talking about a very small number of people, like in terms of who those people are. Right. Even if you go back to like the time of pre-industrial bourgeois society, um, really pre-capitalism in the Marxist sense, but what most people would still consider to be capitalism, that the merchant class and the proprietor class is numerically very small. Right. Um, much, you know, they're small the way the clergy and the aristocracy are a small group of people. Right. And so it's not like 
you know, if you're talking about like a class struggle, that's 99% versus 1%. That's not much of a class struggle, isn't it? Like, it's like hands down, the workers win every time. So obviously that's not the problem. And I talked about this in the compact article. I said, you look, the real yeah, issue. But I, I just want to clarify. I yeah. asked if, if you have a society based on labor, mm. creating the value, which sets up an exchange. You do not that, need class for that. No. Yeah. You why do not? not? Why wouldn't you? Because um, there wouldn't actually be like different functions with respect to production. Would you need to take money uh, or resources that were produced and reinvest them into the, for the future? You may or may not, actually. I mean, one of the things that defines industrialization is when the workers no longer own the means of production, meaning it used to be that the workers own their own tools, and they certainly own their own skills. So they owned the means of production. Mm-hmm. Right. So you wouldn't need you wouldn't need to create a surplus. Well, I mean, there is a social surplus, but the social surplus is a kind of a curious function of like market competition, right? So it's basically, um, I mean, you know, is there really like the social like in the 1700s? What kind of a social surplus is there? Um, it's a surplus of wealth, you could say. In other words, like merchants kind of skim the transactions and accumulate. But there isn't a surplus of value. Mm-hmm. And capitalism is defined by surplus value. Mm-hmm. Right? So value becomes divided against itself. Living labor versus dead labor. Capital versus wages. Right? So... It's not class in the Marxist sense until the Industrial Revolution. On, on what basis would I exchange one bourgeois laborer with another? Would I would I have confidence that the products of my own labor were being tr- exchanged for an equivalent amount of other commodities? If not, based that's on up to money. you. That's on you. Well, okay. Whether so then we don't really have regulated. Uh, equivalent. We don't have uh, exchanges equivalents. Well, you do in the most general sense, right? Uh, in other words, in the way that um, again, it's not a con- it's not a convention. It's not something that we agree to. It's not like we agree to equivalents, and then we enter into an exchange. Because after all, again, the original bourgeois vision is that it's basically truck bartering and exchanging, meaning it's barter. It's not, you know, and again, the role of money is just to facilitate. It's not like its own thing, really. So money for Marx only becomes its own thing when it becomes money capital. When it becomes a commodity, a universal equivalent to all other commodities. That's when it becomes, that's when it's money in the sense when it, when it, when a it universal equivalent rep- because it represents as a store of uh, representing the value money and it's gold it has its own labor it time invested in um it. it represents the value of all commodities but that's different from representing the value of capital well right and in a sense it is i mean especially in a consumer society where things in are an produced. industrial society i mean we're going to go through an inflation now and where does inflation come from 
Does well, it come from money being a commodity? Let's, too much stick, money? let's be let's let's not get to the complicated stuff yet. No, I mean, that's not complicated, Doug. Because what the right is saying is that we're experiencing an inflation crisis because too much stimulus money was paid out, too much money was printed. So you have too much of a commodity, so it falls in value. That's not what Marxists think. Marxists think that you have inflation because of a crisis of value, not because there's too much money as a commodity. Well, I mean, right, but I mean, the, 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 the crisis of difference. value, yeah, I know, but the crisis of value preceded the solution of producing, of, of dumping a ton of money into uh, the market, you know, well, into circulation. Well, you can take another word for it. They, they did what they did because of COVID, not because of the Great Recession. Right. right. Or I guess the MMT people would say, well, we had functionally negative interest rates. And so it was a response to the Great Recession. But actually, that situation predates the Great Recession. Like the early 2000s was also a low interest environment. And so, you know, again, it becomes this kind of thing. And, you know, just for me, going back to brass tacks, whether Marx was right or wrong, he would say that it's a value crisis, not too much money as a commodity on the market. Well, he would uh, not say that. Definitely not. He would. Completely I mean, not. he would say it was a value crisis, but wouldn't the symptom of it be an, uh, an excess of money? But it, it depends on how you understand it. In other words, it is a symptom, but you could misdiagnose it. And the, right. the it's not the today, cause. It's not the cause of inflation, but it is how it appears as you an, have excess an excess of money. of money. Yeah. But the excess of money for Marx is interpreted as actually an excess of capital, not as an excess of a commodity. Well, the, right, but it's a it's a fictitious capital. It's not okay. It's not it's not capital as invested into productive commodities. It's but you know, capital. like. Volume three, right? If you mm-hmm. want to really get into it, fictitious capital is necessary as far as Marx is concerned. Well, I didn't say it wasn't. Right. I'm just saying so, when there's a crisis, then then what you're talking about is the, uh, you know the the it's necessary except when it doesn't fix the problem. Otherwise, you're going to say there's like real capital and fictitious capital, and it's like, well, actually, how do you separate those? And then you're going to get into like weird. Like, One way you can separate them is, I mean, fictitious capital comes before investment in product into production, right? I mean, it's a, the money that's loaned by banks. It's a, it's a financialized side. It when it works, that the productive side, uh, you know, can create enough profits to pay off the loans, and and it keeps the system running smoothly. When it doesn't work, there's inflation or deflation or some. There's inflation lack- anyway. Growth. Right. In other words, you can. Well, inflation doesn't have to be expressed as a price inflation. Right. Right. It, you know, th- there can be right. an increase in value, but that's not the same as. as I was going to say, though, if you talk to regular economists, right, they would say that economic growth is necessary because of a growing population. And Marx doesn't think that that's the reason why in capitalism growth is necessary. Well, I mean, economic growth under capitalism doesn't have a direct connection to use values anyway. Right. So you can, you know, so you have this abstraction that's being, that's setting up exchanges, and, you know, the, 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 as equivalents in the market that, um, whereas, you know, how much you actually, you could have a massive problem 
uh, with production and not have enough, um, but have a huge amount of profitability for most. The reason people. that you need fictitious capital, mm-hmm. the reason that you need like, you know, gigaflops of data per, se- per millisecond, mm-hmm. you know, computing financial transactions around the world with trillions and trillions of dollars, you know, circulating is because that's what it takes to mediate or to try to mediate. So it's like a symptom in the sense that it's an attempted mediation of actually a crisis of production that's been ongoing for Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, you right? and I agree with that, about that. Exactly. And, you, and so you need more and more money to accomplish the same thing. But my right? original question is, don't you think that whenever you have basically the amount of time it takes to make a commodity being what gives a commodity an exchange value, you know, when you're trying, when you're aiming at letting labor time and thereby labor dictate the terms of society, you're going Let's to Let's go back to the platform. bourgeois model of barter, like that we're exchanging, right? Mm-hmm. The reason that it's on us, the terms of exchange is, you know, like, okay, it takes me a certain amount of time to produce whatever I've produced. And it takes, um, you know, a certain amount of material resources to reproduce my labor whose time it took to produce the commodity, but I could eat rice or I could eat meat. I could sleep on a hammock or I could live in a house. Only like if other me. people are producing those things in a system of exchange or well, you're producing them yourself. I'm going to produce something very valuable and I'm going to live extremely frugally. Okay. Right. And I'm, I'm going to sell things but I'm, I'm hardly going to buy anything, right? Yeah. I'm going to grow vegetables in my garden so that the dollars yeah. that I make on my wages go as far as possible. Yeah, but and then I'm you don't have a society dictated by, by the, you're not, then, then labor isn't determining the basis of society. If it is. It, no, no not, 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 no, it's not. It's, 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 uh, you know, sub- subsistence farming is not what I mean by, it's no, not changing society, it's not leading. Well, that's what you're I'm doing. Talking, you're going to grow veggies in your garden in order to live off that and then sell. No, I'm talking about there. for Marx, the level of subsistence is variable. Well, it's culturally, socially, and politically variable. Sure. Yes. But I it's think there's completely a minimum, variable. There's a minimum floor, which I think is not entirely variable. You can't, you know, there's there a, isn't there's a minimum a, floor. There isn't. And we're going to see that. Get ready. Okay. They're going to push the limits of subsistence. I mean, they've already done it in our lifetime, Doug, the last 50 years. They've made things extremely expensive. They've made subsistence really low. They compensated for that a little bit by making things like food and clothes cheap. Right. Right. But, but basically... Um, you but you're know, shifting left- from, from, you know, how much food you need to grow in your garden for subsistence. No, I'm saying to, I can make that choice. To That's all what I'm are saying. the prices of commodities in under capitalism? Those are completely different things. They it's not a theory of price though, Doug. It's not economics. Marx is not a theory of price. It's not telling you anything about prices. It's not economics. It really isn't. If you go down that highway, there's a relationship are, between the value produced and the prices, but they're not one for one. But as a dynamic is, over time. In other yeah. words, if you look at how prices change over time, that will tell you something. But it's not pegged to it. Like it's not a labor theory of price. 
I, I want to clarify something. The, like, I want to clarify something. Like, you and I are not arguing on the level that you, that you wrote. We're arguing in this kind of esoteric. We're arguing at a very different level, and I think that one of the reasons why we went there, um, if if I'm, is we were talking about class, and so we can go back right. to class. And you were saying, isn't there something inherent in? And I think a lot of Marxists have this wrong. And I also think, um, you know, my old professor, Moish Postone, who's a very good reader of Marx uh-huh. and sees the global view very well, was still unclear about this, about, like, for him, bourgeois society per se, labor as value per se, is inherently contradictory. And my sense from Marx is that it's not in the way that it is with industry, really. Right. And I and I want to say the contradictions within bourgeois society had their own logic and led to industrialization. It led to the creation of a class society. No, because and this is very Hegelian. Contradictions come into existence and pass out of existence. They aren't always there. Right. Especially this kind of contradiction, like the value contradiction of capitalism. Why capitalism? Marx and Engels are very clear. Capitalism starts with the Industrial Revolution. It has where a they, where, where, where do they say that? Exactly. In 1847. Okay. In their writings right before the Communist Manifesto. And they don't change their mind about that. They only specify it further. It's in the Critique of Proudhon. It's in the um, Poverty of Philosophy, which is a critique of Proudhon's political economy. Um that they think Proudhon cannot account for the changes with the Industrial Revolution, and therefore he's incoherent in this critique of bourgeois political economy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also in the drafts to the Communist Manifesto, the Credo, Confessions of a Communist. And in other words, people asking, so when did the proletariat come into existence? With the Industrial Revolution. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's true, right? I mean, that... Well, then, that's class. In other words, there is no class before the proletariat. There's no well, class. I mean, right, right. But what I'm saying is that the necessity for the proletariat arose out of the kind of production for exchange. That and I do talk about this in, in my compact article. Right, I do, do talk about that. Right. I talk about it as um, a matter of technology being introduced in response to demands for higher wages by the workers. So the workers are demanding higher wages and that's driving industrialization because it's, it's in, you know, again, it's kind of complicated because there's cooperation, manufacture and industry for Marx mm-hmm. and really bourgeois society is cooperation. And someone like Adam Smith understands manufacturing as a version of cooperation, division of labor. Mm -hmm. Um, Manufacturing is what starts to involve the workers losing their ownership of the means of production. Mm -hmm. Right? Because they are only contributing to a piece of production that has to take place under the auspices of the proprietor in a factory. And it's the, you know, workers forming a machine through their own choreography and the detailed division of labor. And that's a condition upon which the 
machines in the Industrial Revolution are introduced. But it's a very brief moment, right? It's like late 1700s that you have manufacturing coming into existence. And in the conventional dating of the Industrial Revolution, that is part of the Industrial Revolution, in fact. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's not like literally, like when people think of the Industrial Revolution, they think of it as like, the machines causing something, it's actually the social relations causing something right, from a Marxist standpoint. Which is my whole point, to, again, okay. to go back yes. to like uh-huh. the, 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 the necessity for what we think of as industrialization spraying out of the kinds of relationships that were already formed in, around production. When you break with subsistence farming and you free up labor to exchange equivalent goods, then this will be a consequence because of the way in which labor itself, labor time, mediates the relationships at first, and then that becomes... It's always, it's always a process of the workers uh, asserting a greater share versus the proprietors and then the owners of capital later, the capitalists, asserting for them a smaller share of the value of production, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's where, um, again, uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, it involves things like um, already, actually, women and children. You know, it's why the textile industry is such a central part of both Adam Smith and Marx's view. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's not a deus ex machina. It's not like the machine is God descending down and right. causing change. It is a social relations, but it's the social relations taking a particular turn that uh, one complication for us is that Marx and Engels in the 1840s, they really believed that the Industrial Revolution was leading directly into communism. Right. So our view of these things from the standpoint of 150 years later is not at all what they were thinking and assuming. And, and even though it didn't happen in 1848, they still, the rest of their lives, they were like, okay, now we're in the phase where the workers are building up their social and political power to take power. They right. weren't thinking we're going to have generation after generation after generation of industrial development and deindustrialization and reindustrialization, they they were they were not thinking that at all. Right. Like, right. They were just thinking we thought it would go directly from industrial capitalism to communism. Right. And but now and, we know it's going to take a little while to build the party. And it didn't do that, and and um, it didn't do that one for political reasons, right? But also, Marx could have predicted and did predict that capital would go into crisis and begin could be devalued, which could include deindustrialization, you know, if you think it through, but the, but that already like, happened in the 1840s. Right. And, and, and again, it happened in the 1880s. Yes. You know? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, Marx could, could see that in a way, but he just thought that the massive technological innovation along with the freedom of, of the working class and that create. the workers would put two and two together. In other words, right. it wasn't just the, the technological innovation, because insofar as that was in the hands of the capitalists, 
then the workers can just be pauperized. In other oh, words, right, it doesn't right. make no, communism but, but, at all. But I mean, like if you read Society of the Spectacle, which I've been reading and reading and, you know, backwards, forwards, upside down. But it's 1960s. What, it's way too late. But but what they are saying is like, you know, we need to uh, let automation free us instead of uh, subordinate us. See, but know? they're giving a kind of agency to technology itself that it doesn't have. The only agency is the political agency of the working class. Well, I maybe did. What they would say is a proletariat needs to, to take over all aspects of life, including the, the technology uh, to create a society run by the general intellect and the workers' councils. That's what they would say, not we need to let technology free us. But my point is that, that uh, because of the way uh, our understanding was to really making you know how they're traditional marxists though how? they're traditional marxists because they do think that bourgeois social relations is like the private property of the capitalists and industrial forces of production is technology and that is not true that is not how it works the point of the matter is is that it's a self-contradiction of the bourgeois social relations in which it's potential the industrial force and that's why it's called a force rather than a thing is coming up against the bourgeois social relation, but the bourgeois social relation is not the private property of the capitalists, it's labor. It's labor itself, right? Which means the workers. Oh, I know, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I talked, I talked to Steve be... Paxton and Sean Sayers about this particular thing, but they, they felt that the working class could uh, liberate themselves from the, uh, you know, the wage relation Take, reform and 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 take over the means of production that, that already existed and mm-hmm. use innovation and, and understanding and the general intellect to, to lead society rather than um, labor, labor time. You know, that's already happening, though, Doug. And you know who those workers are? Who? Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Bill Gates. Um, Elon but to, Musk, but, but unless, unless there's a proletariat revolution, all that's going to do is their success hinges on, uh, again, fictitious capital, rent collection. All that's going to do is set up another de- process of devaluation. They can't. I don't know if that's get entirely. There. I don't think that's entirely fair. I don't think that um, Bill Gates in his garage making the microcomputer is depending upon rents and fictitious capital he's depending on the general social intellect oh yeah you make you make a living selling one microcomputer from your garage well without, I mean, without got, charging rent chris yeah not charging rent investors. do it yeah you I mean, do it of course it's rent of course it's rent no to hire he owns intellectual property because that one computer he built in his garage would not make him enough money as a commodity to support him his life he made billions of dollars by controlling the intellectual property that later. software, no, but he didn't make a billion dollars until later. He but made a, he, he made a, yeah, right. He, he made something. Know, he made something. He made a technical innovation. In right. other words, he allowed innovation. To but flourish, that thing like he you made were saying. was not a commodity. It could not be exchanged in the market. It had to be sold as property. It was not, a, a, it was a unique thing. It was a unique use value, which could only be turned into a commodity by workers. Here's, not, here's really the rub. Yeah, the rub is that the dictatorship of the proletariat will not be the end of capitalism. Okay, it will not be the end of capitalism. Right. It will be 
the highest form of capitalism, meaning it will be the most acute contradiction of capitalism, since capitalism is a contradiction. Right. It's not a thing. Capitalism is not rent collection. Capitalism is not surplus value extraction. Capitalism is not capital accumulation. Capitalism is the crisis of those things. Because if it were simply surplus value extraction and capital accumulation, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have. We would just have savings for investment. That's I think that, I think I mean this what what we're talking about right now is where you and I have a difference. Like I love the dictatorship of the proletariat if its aim is to overcome commodity production. No, that's its stuff. aim in a Marxist sense, meaning its true purpose. Right. But that that's the beginning of a process, meaning the workers could always like flake out. Right? And yeah. then, you know, they could just say, you know what, managers, tell us what to do. Okay, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, do an ad hominem attack on me because I think it will be productive. You know, not like the usual "you're an idiot" kind of thing, but more like, what kind of leftist am I that I have this kind of problem that I keep coming back to this kind of problem? Well, purely ad hominem, I'd say you know, like it's the Marxist humanism. You've imbibed a lot of bourgeois socialism and a lot of like hysteric liberalism, hysteric progressive liberalism. It's like you know. Andrew I don't feel like I'm being a hysteric liberal when I you say you don't feel things. like it, but you've kind of adopted the framework. I mean, here it is. So why does Andrew Kleiman, who kind of taught you Marx? Yeah. Why does he why is he always on a crusade against Keynesians? Uh, because he feels as though the Keynesians want to sell ref, uh, basically the same thing that you're talking about, the welfare state, the Bonapartism. Sure, socialism. sure. But at a theoretical level, as an economist, he remains a Keynesian. How so? Because of what you're talking about, like price, rents. These are all distribution problems. Oh, yeah. Well, no, but okay. All of that is distribution. He doesn't point to, he doesn't want to control prices. Fictitious capital, finance. He, that's all uh, distribution. That's not production. That's yeah, but you're like just you're confusing describing the rules of chess with thinking that chess is the only game. I'm trying to point out to you what the limits of capitalism are. I'm not trying to say this is a reified horizon of, of our future. No, I'm not saying I'm I'm not I'm not saying you are climbing. What I'm yeah. saying is um, well, I don't think climbing's the climbing you're describing either. I mean, I think his reasons for going radlib have like do not no no i don't think that it comes from a way of thinking his radlibism comes from politics and we might all be radlibs in other words we might all have our limit where we say okay i cry uncle i think everything should be done to protect abortion rights or i think everything should be done to prevent i don't know a war and i don't care if i have to go in with some reactionaries to stop this i want it stopped okay yeah right that's where I almost feel like I am with the Ukraine situation sometimes, you know, like I'd be willing to throw in with people like, uh, well, I mean, maybe not, but like Steve Bannon, if Steve, if I thought throwing in with Steve Bannon mm-hmm. and the conflict in Ukraine, he's not the worst, by the way, no. I thought you were going to say Alexander Dugan. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, gosh, that'd Steve be the more obvious way to go, wouldn't it? Isn't it? That would be yeah, the yeah. real choice. Like, I that can't even be. think that thought, right? Right. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know? yeah, um, to stop the war in Ukraine, uh, to, to negotiate a, a peace for there, I, I'd be willing to do it. But, you know, lot. like, I, so I think that 
the theoretical point is, you know, what is the critique of capitalism, right? And again, it's not that, like, it's an inhuman system. No. Right? It's not that it is, like, um, you know, this kind of almost Weberianism, like this kind of runaway production or something. Because if right. it were only that, if it were well, only I mean, that. That's all, it's very conservative, this idea, oh, we have too much stuff and we have, too, you know, too much understanding. We're ruining the environment. Right. Right? I always invoke interstellar. Christopher right. Nolan, born in the same year as me, mm. you know, the point is not to save the earth, but to leave it. Right. You know, meaning like, you know, the earth has been uninhabitable for species at various points in its history. You know, like the dinosaurs died. And, you know, like, I don't know, like, you know what I mean? Like, I kind of feel like if you, you cannot make your highest value saving the environment. No, you got to make your highest value creating a Dyson sphere going to other stars. <laughs> right. Well, I, but again, it's the purpose of production. And right. the point of the dictatorship of the proletariat is to confront the contradiction of production in the sense of its dual purpose in capitalism, mm. meaning its purpose is to produce wealth and its purpose is to produce value. And the degree to which those are at odds with each other Right. There's a problem. And see, that's what you and I have been arguing over is to, just to the degree to which the value, the kind of value that is dependent on labor time is at odds with our, our common goal of liberating humanity to actually. And I talk about that in the compact article, too. You Basically, do. I know. I we have, have little... wealth production, but we don't have a good way of appropriating its value socially. Right. Well, and also our, the kind of wealth we can produce is way too limited. By, well, by it's, the need it's for constrained profits. and distorted by yeah, yeah. value production. Like, you know, an example is my light bulbs are always burning out, you know, and that's because you need of, to get some LED lights. They I know, but even, even they aren't as good as they were back at a hundred years I, ago. When they first came out. No, I yeah, know because they I, realized, well, we can't make LED lights. They last for 10 years. So that's not going to work. There's a light in a fire station that's been on for 112 years in, in like Philadelphia. It's like an original light bulb. It didn't. It would it didn't, be in Philadelphia, wouldn't it? Where Benjamin Franklin was doing his stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, with flying the kite. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> my, my my point is like, we, there are lots of ways in which capitalism and its demands for profitability limit the way in which. Well, we, we need to know. In other words, there are people who are like profiteers, mm -hmm. right? We need to understand what function they serve in other words this is not a society that's enslaved to the profiteers no this is a society that can make use of the profiteers to preserve capital yeah but the, the other thing to remember about profit under capitalism is it doesn't rely on what we normally think of as a profiteer to come about it doesn't rely on that but you can make use of some people like that well sure They're but helpful. i mean like look yeah elon musk is a helpful guy but the point no, is i like, mean he may not even care about profits too much but you need some like maniacal Wall Street traders. You need some like obsessive okay, type but, people, but right? Normally, the, the you think of profiteers as people who maybe in, in an underhanded way take more than they ought to as a profiteer. That's right? why I said Wall Street traders. Right, right. But I mean, the reality is that profit. The weird thing is, theoretically, anyway, comes out of an equal exchange where nobody loses, right? Except for workers. So that, I mean, that, that, well, why would you say except for workers? Well, they lose their time. 
I mean, they, that's they, not a loss. It's called living. Well, okay. Um, they're they are the unique commodity that produces more value than they require to to get an exchange. They do not. Yeah, get society equals. demands something of them, and that's not the problem. Well, okay. Critique of the Gotha program. That the yeah, right the exploitation is technical. There, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a moral category, but it is different from any other kind of exchange in the market. Um, uh, well, no, it it's tricky. It's tricky because I think that again, what Marx wants to get at is why exploitation happens. Right. And again, it's not for the traditional reasons. With the industrial revolution, it's no longer the old exploitation. Right. Well, it you sell your labor power, which is a formal contract, to go to work, and then you work however long the, the boss can get you to work. But the real reason why you're exploited is that the surplus value that you produce mm-hmm. actually does not support society and future generations, but rather produces a crisis of that society that undermines both society and uh, now, now i think you're being moralistic and not me i think the reason you're exploited is a technical one you are you know, the exploitation comes from the exchange the amount of money it takes for you to buy a, a basket of commodities to reproduce yourself in a given day uh, th- that money is less than the amount of commodities that you produce in a day so the difference between the no, see, value I, of the commodities i, I pointed out the day, critique of the gotha program marx marx and marxists don't have any problem with that they don't have any problem with you being paid less than what you produce. There's no problem there because society does need a surplus. There is a requirement for a social surplus. The problem is that this social surplus doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Capital does not do what it's supposed to do. Right? It does not preserve society and ensure future production, but it destroys society and undermines future production. Yeah, but you said the reason you're exploited. That's the reason you're exploited. But no, you're exploited. Your, your exploitation is is that technical term. It's not a so moral listen, judgment. if you're but according to your technical term, society is exploiting you. Yeah, of course society is exploiting you. Society owns you. You only exist because of society. You belong to society. Yeah, society Socrates, has the right to exp- Socrates drank the hemlock. You know, yeah. But that's not exploitation. That's the death penalty. I mean, in other words, right. no, like, no, but he said, I know, could not, I cannot stand up against the laws of my society. It goes to Rousseau, which okay. is society gives you life and therefore you owe society. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, and it used to be, I guess you, you belong to your parents because they gave you life, but now it's a more general phenomenon and that's good. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right, that we belong to society, we don't belong to this or that patriarch the right. way we used to, because that's why they could put you to death too in Roman law. The the father can kill his wife and children. Right? Right. right. So now it's more general. I think we should get back to those days, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. Would that solve some problems? It would create other problems. But you know, but really though, exploitation like is not because we're contributing more than we're getting back. That is not it. Like, well, that's not it because that's, I, that's, if you think of exploitation as a moral problem or the major, 
thing that needs to be corrected. The implications that come out of the problem. You're quite right that the problem is that that exploitation leads to contradictions and I mean, look, and then we're just in feudalism, right? Like in feudalism, the village of peasants is producing for its subsistence. Right. And then they need a lord to protect them. They need a kick-ass warrior on a horse, sword and shield, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, I'm not going to be a good warrior if I have to farm with you guys. Yeah. So you're going to have to give me some food even though I don't farm. Yeah, but they didn't live under the rule of equality. I mean, the the, feudal, the problem with, the, with capitalism is that it requires an uh, inequality. We only have things. inequality now. In other words, back then, that's not inequality. That's apples and oranges. Sure. But now we have a rule of equality. There were and the priest have... would come and say, you should feed this guy and not make him farm because he's not a good farmer anyway, and he's a kick-ass fighter. And God put him here to protect us. Sure. Okay. Okay? Yeah. And so, you know, and so that's not what we're dealing with in capitalism. We got to just disabuse ourselves of that completely, totally. Yeah, but to the degree to which workers that's giving something that you don't get back, right? Well, it's not uh, that now. Like paying for the Lord Supper, you know, because he can't farm because he has to spend all of his days doing like sword fighting practice, you know? Right. And negotiating with other lords, having very complicated relationships. Here's here's the thing, Chris. Like, not mm-hmm. only do you get you do you you produce more than you get, right, in terms of value, but the better you are at producing, the faster you can produce, the less value you'll get for yourself. Yes, and the more exploited you'll be. That's where we're talking about the working class's self exploitation, right. And how that's understood by someone like Adam Smith and how it's understood by Marx and what comes between them. Why is, is that self-exploitation when, when they... Of the class. Yeah. Of the, of class. the class. Right. Right. Not of... Because, again, the capitalists are serving a pretty ancillary role. Mm-hmm. Right? So what we're talking about, and again, this is something that I get into in the compact article, the divisions in the working class, where do they come from? Are they accidental? Do they come from individualism, selfishness? Do they come from racism and sexism? No. They come no, from no. the crisis of value and capitalism. Yeah, look, this is what, look, all of the things I've been saying so far are all my reasons why I don't think workers' co-ops can be what we mean by socialism. Because I think that what you'll find is competition between workers' co-ops and even uh, development amongst workers' co-ops. And that's workers- not even a problem. You know, in other words, that's cool. Like, why shouldn't people have to compete? Why shouldn't well, I have to be a better professor than another professor? Well, the problem is that you'll have un- that will be attendant to unemployment. That's not where unemployment comes from. It doesn't come from competition. It, it doesn't. No, it doesn't that would come be a from some, bus- some businesses uh, out competing through technological advancement, no, and the faster there's production. Others, and then the number of laborers necessary temporary. for production. That's- that's that means your firm goes out of business and you get a job somewhere else. It doesn't mean you lose your job and there are no jobs for you. That's that latter well, condition is the real the problem. Total society um, ma- manages to innovate and lower the level of uh, 
work necessary for production. This is a declining rate of profit thing. Then you'll have massive amounts of businesses going under and you know, a huge production. Then you, you know what you do then? You invent what? new jobs. In other words, you say people are not going to work in a factory producing widgets. They're going to be um, working at a hospital as a nurse, or they're going to be working at a college as an adjunct faculty, or they're sure. going to be, right? Yeah, but, but you know, that's that's the, two things that you, the, the two things that you named, uh, 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 a hospital as a nurse and um, college uh, professor, are things that don't actually expand the amount of value created by labor in society most of the time. So, so what you're going to have is just a continuation. You can, you can run it through the state and take out loans for the banks and pay for whole new sectors and kick the can down the road. But eventually you're going to have to expand the amount of labor time expended to produce the things. I'm just afraid that you might be pegging value crises and capitalism to a kind of high heavy goods industrial production economy where because i would say technology and this is why marx calls it the general social intellect mm. right it's not just machines it's also like organization of labor and organization of processes and so there's no particular reason why medical care and higher education are not forms of technology yeah well, they are. Um, they, they are kinds of technology for sure. But what and they by don't the way, that's why is... Foucault comes in with uh, biopower, right? In other words, we can't be behind, we can't be behind the curve on the postmodernists, <laughs> meaning, no, we can't. I mean, Foucault comes in and says, well, you know, this notion that Marxists have about technology, they need to be thinking about biopower. What about that as a technology? And it's like, he's absolutely right about that. Okay. 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 Here's what I want to say right now. And then I want us to continue on and, and maybe I want to give you more time to talk. Cause I feel like I've been kind of, I want everyone to know, like everyone watching this, like I'm being combative with you, combative with you as a comrade, as, yeah, a, another, as a fellow yeah, Marxist. Yeah. yeah. I'm not taking you know? it wrong. No, yeah, no, I know you're not, but I want everyone watching to know, like, like of the two articles you wrote, I fundamentally agree with them. Like what we're talking about here is like, what Higher do we do level uh, problems. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. <laughs> what do we do when we organize the socialist party and and try to take power? What do we What do we need to do? Um, so I, I, I think wanna... there's a notion that people had in the past where you have to organize the factories of heavy industry because that's strategic. Mm-hmm. And it's like no, that's not that's not true, right? In other words, like that's just it's not like I agree. there's the means of production and everything else is just yeah. rentiers and their adjectives. I get confused about, you know, I have to really think, and sometimes I don't even get to the conclusion about what counts as commodity production, what actually counts as producing value. And there's some confusion, I admit. Around you know this. what it counts? Everything that reproduces labor power. Right. Well, any, anything that. Because that's the main commodity. That's right. the only commodity that really matters. Okay. Listen. And not I'm because gonna, it I, produces things, but because it mediates society. If everyone wants to watch Chris Catrone wipe the floor with Doug Lane, they're going to have to continue on in the Patreon. I'm going to, we can keep recording, but uh, this is where we're going to break for the Patreon. Uh, so uh, this will be fun.